0: I learned a little bit at the time about the New Jewel Movement and Maurice Bishop. And I remember writing a longish piece for the school newspaper on the U.S. intervention into Grenada, trying to attach it in my own juvenile way to other U.S. interventions of that kind including, and most spectacularly, the U.S. armed entry into the Dominican Republic in 1965. In this article, I compared the intervention into the Dominican Republic with Grenada, and it impacted me a lot because I felt, why do poor people have to tolerate this over and over again?
1: That's Vijay Prashad, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, part two of a special two-part program. Is history just a bunch of innocuous cold facts and dates? Or is it something more? What can we learn from the past? History is not neutral. It's an ideological battleground. Witness the vitriolic attacks by establishment figures on those who want a reckoning of the enslavement of African Americans. They want to obfuscate that sordid of history. Or take the US invasion of Grenada in 1983. What was that about? Or the CIA coup in Chile. Never read about that in school. Elites can lie outright about history, or they can omit facts that might lead to inconvenient conclusions. The rulers want to keep to their sanitized version of the past and maintain myths about enlightened leaders. Sure, here and there a few bad apples made mistakes, but they were the exception, not the rule. Were they? Our guest today is Vijay Prashad. He's an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the director of TriContinental and chief correspondent for Globetrotter. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. I talked with him in early November. Now, the Ukraine war was launched by Russia on February 24th. There was obvious provocation well-documented from NATO, the US-led military alliance. Nevertheless, the Russian action was a clear violation of international law, much, I must add, like the US invasions of scores of countries. The Russian invasion revived NATO's fortunes, which were fading. The alliance has 30 members and will soon add Finland and Sweden. The war is a bonanza for the arms industry, with U.S. military corporations leading the way. And military spending has gone up among NATO members, particularly Germany. The war drags on. NATO and the U.S. say they will continue to funnel weapons to Ukraine for as long as it takes. What does that mean for as long as it takes? Five years, 10 years? How many Ukrainians have to die before there's negotiations and there's a settlement?
0: About a month ago, I um, put together an article which I had been working on for a while uh, about the negotiations. I I was interested in the negotiations taking place in Turkey between Ukraine and Russia, uh, essentially, you know, brokered by the Turkish government and the negotiations taking place in Belarus between the Ukrainians and the the Russians. These uh, negotiations started... Interestingly, in late February, 24th was the invasion by Russia, but a few days later, the negotiations begin. There were about four to five rounds of negotiations, depending on how you calculate them. And interestingly, it became clear in March that they had come to an interim agreement. Now, the interim agreement in, looked a lot like Minsk too. They never published it and they never said much about it. It was confirmed much later, in fact, just about a month ago in October of 2022, by an article in Foreign Affairs magazine co-authored by Fiona Hill. In this article about Putin, which was a kind of hit job on Putin, she mentions in a paragraph about this interim peace agreement that was made in April and which then fell apart. And she basically doesn't explain how it fell apart, but she says it resembled Minsk too and so on. All the things that I had picked up in my conversations with the Turks and others seemed to be true. That there was an agreement in March and it resembled Minsk too and it fell apart. Well, Interestingly, very shortly after there was an um, this peace, uh, interim peace agreement, Boris Johnson, then Prime Minister of the UK, showed up in Kiev and goes on his walking tour with Vladimir Zelensky. By, by the way, Vladimir Zelensky wins the election to become president. He was a, um, you know, really an outsider candidate. He wins the election because he ran on a peace platform to, to have negotiations with the Russians. Well, uh, Boris Johnson arrives and makes public statements saying that the West will not allow Ukraine to make peace with Russia, that Russia has to be effectively defeated. Shortly thereafter, US Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin arrives in Kiev along with Antony Blinken, Secretary of State. At the press conference that they give, um, Lloyd Austin says that the the war aim here is to weaken Russia. He says, he uses that phrase, weaken Russia. Uh, No question of negotiation. So there's been a lot of pressure from the United States, the UK and other countries on Zelensky not to negotiate any longer. That is now basically corroborated. There's nobody denying that. Here's the interesting thing. Then they say we're going to arm Ukraine, but not arm Ukraine sufficiently uh, to antagonize Russia so that it further escalates the conflict, you know, because that might be too much. They are going to arm Ukraine sufficiently to not allow Russia to win. So neither to allow Ukraine to win, nor to allow Russia to win. Um, Hillary Clinton, in a kind of loose moment on on U.S. television, said that, well, one of the things that could happen is that Ukraine could become like Afghanistan. Um, Now, I think she was thinking about the Afghanistan of the Soviet invasion. Um, In other words, when a previous high official of the U.S. security apparatus, uh, Mr. Brzezinski, said, we'll bring the Russian bear into a trap. Well, it looks like that's what Hillary Clinton was saying on television. She said, essentially, we're going to have to um, make Ukraine like Afghanistan. That means that there is no appetite in the West to allow for negotiations, despite the fact that Ukrainians are going to die. And that's horrendous, horrible situation. It strengthens also, by the way, um, the uh, antipathy inside Europe. Uh, because inflation and high energy costs in particular are increasing, it strengthens people's desolation and their anger. They're on the streets in very large numbers. That's going to increase. And thirdly, it's already become clear that Russia is essentially deintegrating from Europe and reintegrating to other countries in Asia. One is Turkey in Eurasia, but also Iran also India, also China, and to some extent Japan. So you're going to have a serious problem here because the failure to negotiate now is going to result in a situation where Russia may not in the future, unless there's regime change by the West in Russia, Russia is not going to be interested in selling its energy to Europe because it's found new, more reliable customers in Turkey, Iran, India, China, and perhaps Japan. Um, And so then, where will Europe get its energy from? This is going to be a permanent crisis for Europe. It's going to have to buy liquefied natural gas from Qatar, from the United States, much more expensive than just piping it through Nord Stream 2. It's going to have to buy energy from Norway. Norwegian energy is more expensive than than, uh, Russian energy, which is why Norway, one of the world's large um, holdings of energy, has not been a principal energy seller to Russia th- uh, to Germany. Thirty percent of German energy had been from Russia, not from Norway. Even though Norway is just north of Germany, and there are pipelines, it's more expensive. So this failure to allow negotiations, end this war, and so on, is going to result in permanent uh, economic challenges for for Europe. They, there's no exit for Europe unless there's negotiations. And it should be said that. You know there's a lot of talk saying you can't negotiate with putin he is a authoritarian putin is not reliable and so on um that's a curious bunch of of statements because the real authoritarian for instance saudi arabia is an ally of the united states if you can talk to the saudis they're real authoritarians they don't even pretend to have elections then the problem of authoritarianism isn't the real problem um you say that well putin cannot be relied upon what evidence is there of that? I mean, in fact, we have evidence. The United States cannot be relied on. It walked out of the treaty with the uh, Iranians. Why not try and negotiate with him? If it is true, as I'm saying, that in March there was an agreement between the uh, Ukrainians and the Russians, an interim agreement, why not come back to that and let that uh, germinate, see where what happens? You know, Every side is going to have to make some concessions. Already the Ukrainians had lost control of Crimea Uh, looks now to be a fact that they will not be able to recover the Donbass region, but maybe there'll be other concessions to be made. I don't know, but you only can find out if there are negotiations. Uh, Before there are negotiations, in fact, it's all speculation. But absent negotiations, it's going to be more Ukrainians killed, which is terrible. And secondly, Europe is going to be put in a permanent condition of high fuel prices. And I don't know if the governments in Europe will be able to tolerate that. The election in Italy is a bellwether. It's a bellwether where the far right comes to power. And even there, the far right comes to power, and the new prime minister has a hard time advancing the far right agenda, which means even in Italy, it may radicalize further to the right. I don't know what's going to happen, but I must say, things are quite bad for Europe now.
1: In Italy, the new head of state is Georgia Meloni. She's routinely described even here in the corporate media in in the United States as leading the most right-wing government since Mussolini. But let's go back to um, Ukraine for a moment and the danger of the war escalating. Ukraine's uh, nuclear reactors may intentionally or unintentionally be hit releasing radiation there is saber rattling from Russia. Putin has not ruled out the possibility of using uh, nuclear weapons. In fact, the New York Times just a couple of days ago had an article uh, in which it cites Russian generals talking about the use of a tactical uh, nuclear weapon. I mean, this is just extraordinary. But what if Putin suffers a humiliating defeat? The fear is that he might use nuclear weapons in such a scenario?
0: We are living in a very dangerous situation. There are North Korean tests being conducted of missiles. President Yoon of South Korea has said that he would welcome U.S. tactical nuclear weapons on South Korean soil. There's talk in Finland of all places that maybe tactical nuclear weapons will be deployed there and so on. This is a horrendous situation, frankly. It doesn't help that uh, in the middle of all this, the Russians are saying, well, we might use nuclear weapons. I mean, this is horrendous. You know, it should be widely condemned. uh, These statements made by Russian generals, the statement made by President Yoon of South Korea. I mean, frankly, there needs to be a new arms control discussion by the powers, but it's just not going to happen if this conflict continues. As soon as the all clear blows in Kiev, I think it's important to put pressure on Russia, the United States, to enter into a new arms control discussion. I am of the view that tactical nuclear weapons need to be abolished. You know, already in the UN, um, the ICANN network has uh, put in place the abolition of nuclear weapons as a treaty. You know, most countries in the world have signed on to it, except of course, the nuclear weapons holding powers have not signed on to it. Um, But there needs to be pressure on them that look, short of abolishing nuclear weapons uh, in general, tactical nuclear weapons need to go because there is a kind of fantasy that a tactical nuclear weapon can actually be used. A major ballistic missile carrying multiple warheads and so on. Okay, those are there in a strategy of detente. If I have them and you have them, we won't attack each other. But if we have these so-called battlefield nukes, there is an idea that, well, maybe they're usable. Uh, They won't take out an entire city, but they could take out an entire column of tanks or something. That is a terrifying thought, because we're now creating weapons of mass destruction where military people and civilian people believe that these could be used with less harm, when in fact these are devastating, dangerous, and should be banned weapons. Without a question, these kind of comments should be roundly condemned, coming from the Russian generals, the South Korean president. Um, from the U.S. military and so on, it's outrageous to even think that a tactical nuclear weapon uh, has a place in our our discourse.
1: You're in uh, Chile. On September 4th, more than 13 million Chileans went to the polls to vote on a new constitution to set aside the 1980 Pinochet dictatorship constitution. The result 61% of voters rejected the new constitution and only 38% approved. You say the vote was, quote, a great defeat for the government, unquote, of Gabriel Boric. What happened in Chile?
0: So it's very interesting. You know, some of the problem lies in the electoral system. Firstly, the moment it was announced that a new constitution is going to be written, and the constituent Constitution writing process started, the right wing began to campaign against the Constitution because, in fact, they campaigned against the idea of a new Constitution. They were perfectly happy with the 1980 Pinochet era Constitution. So they had several, almost a year advanced campaigning that they could do because the left decided you can't campaign for the Constitution until you have it. So they had to wait till the Constitution was written. This gave the right, you know, several months, if not an entire year, lead time in campaigning. Because after all, the right was not campaigning on this or that constitution. They campaigned against having a new constitution. So that was an enormous advantage. The second issue was that in Chile, there's been a kind of back and forth about compulsory voting. You know, there was the idea that everybody, initially, everybody who registers to vote has to vote. That was the initial position and many elections took place where if you registered to vote it was mandatory to vote then the government said no no everybody of age is going to be automatically registered to vote uh, but they don't have to vote you know so they changed the electoral standard now they said you're obligatory to register automatically register but you don't have to vote for this election this extraordinarily consequential election for a new constitution they changed the rules and they said, not only are you automatically registered to vote, you have to vote. So lots of people who had previously not voted were forced to go to the ballot box. Now This is really interesting. There's a large section of people in Chile, particularly, you know, evangelicals, Pentecostals, and so on, who don't vote. And the reason they don't vote is they don't think the government is important. They have a much bigger government that they answer to, the government of the Lord. Uh, They don't bother with elections, you know, very large number of them are abstentious. Uh, So, but for this election, if you didn't vote, you were fine. So they came to vote. And they came to vote against the godless constitution, you know, because the constitution was extraordinarily liberal. Um, It, you know, had women's rights enshrined in it, rights of the indigenous, rights of, of sexual minorities, and so on. And they came in large numbers and voted against it. I was actually surprised that only 61% rejected the constitution. I thought the vote for against the constitution might be even larger um, because of this. So a consequence of the right having a longer period of campaigning and then this new electoral rule. And then thirdly, I thought that the government ran a pretty poor campaign, you know, for a new constitution. They should have highlighted elements that were not exactly in the constitution, but could have benefited. Like for instance, The issue of getting higher royalties um, for the extraction of copper and lithium and so on, the government should have campaigned on that. But Chile is particularly sensitive about this issue because the coup in 1973 was on this issue. The government of Gabriel Boric is sensitive about it. They want to increase royalty payments that the Chileans get for the export of lithium and for copper. Uh, But they don't want to be too aggressive about it for fear of angering the wrong people. I want to put on the record something, David, that some people may not know. Chile is one of the world's largest uh, producers of lithium in the world, essential for batteries and so on. Well, the king of lithium in Chile is a man who happens to be the son-in-law of General Augusto Pinochet. So now you can see the tentacles of the past come right into the present. The candidate that Gabriel Boric defeated in the presidential election, Antonio Cast, uh, comes from a family that is entirely pro dictatorship. Cast's brother, for instance, was one of the Chicago boys. And Cast himself, in the election, uh, defended the dictatorship. So the tentacles of the past continue to sort of tickle the present. And therefore, it's no wonder that it was difficult uh, to push hard to get a new constitution. Um, the, the damage done by that 1973 coup and the regime that lasted, you know, well in well over a decade, uh, regime of Augusto Pinochet, um, that damage done by the coup is pretty considerable on the culture and society of Chile. It's going to take time before the Chilean people can marshal the courage uh, to produce a better constitution.
1: of Chile's population identifies as evangelical. And I should add that they are big in Brazil as well, and big supporters of Bolsonaro.
0: You know, I was in Brazil for the election. And one of the features of the election is, of course, the creation of a new right-wing bloc. Eventually, when Jair Bolsonaro, the the outgoing president, uh, conceded the race to Mr. Lula, he said well you know we can see the race to lula and all of my supporters who have created roadblocks including between sao paulo and the gru airport um, he said disband all the roadblocks let the traffic go but then he said something significant he said we have created a new right-wing movement in brazil and we are not going anywhere so the constituencies in that movement are important to see they include ranchers Um, You know, people who come from the block of what's known as beef, they include people who come from the block of the Bible, Pentecostals, evangelicals of, of, of different kinds, and they also include the block of the bullet, that is to say former military officers, including serving people in the military and so on. It's the camps of beef, bullet and Bible that are the core of Bolsonaro's right wing and they have now shaped themselves as bolsonaristas you know they are hardcore supporters of mr bolsonaro's vision he is the visionary for them they're not going anywhere this election was hard fought and the margin of victory for mr lula was minimal it was just over one and a half million votes very close election lula himself is an extraordinarily charismatic campaigner if it had been any other candidate i don't think he would have defeated mr bolsonaro uh, the last election in 2018, Bolsonaro faced off against my friend Fernando Haddad, who had been the mayor of Sao Paulo. Fernando is an extraordinary, bright person, a very good campaigner, you know, really good campaigner. Um, Fernando could not best Bolsonaro, even though Bolsonaro was saying all kinds of ridiculous things. After the election, when I talked to Fernando, he said that, well, he was a victim of fake news, but also, he was a victim of this new emergent right-wing bloc, you know, shaped in the image of people like Steve Bannon, the advisor of, of Donald Trump, this sort of right-wing neo-fascistic international. Um. So this time, Mr. Lula's personality was, was really right there. And Lula knows how to talk to evangelical voters. Uh, when I went to see him during the campaign, uh, you know, he put his hand behind my head and He's a, he's a very short man. He's about a head and a half shorter than me. But, but he came up to me, put his head behind, hand behind my head and pulled my head down onto his shoulder and held it there for a minute. You know, that is a classic evangelical sort of technique. That's Lula basically greeting me like that. He knows how to talk to people. He's a working class man, a worker, in fact, who's rooted in the culture of his society. He's not outside the evangelical world. He was able to peel away at the evangelical vote base of Mr. Bolsonaro. Not many candidates can do that. That's just a fact, you know. You gotta have some um, cultural linkage in that world to be able to engage people in that world. Gabriel Boric, for instance, comes from the universities, you know, a middle-class professional background. I don't think Gabriel has ever been into an evangelical church, but Lula has. Lula was a worker, lost two of his fingers in an industrial accident, you know, worked in an automobile factory, helped build the trade union, didn't go to college. I mean, he is a working class man who comes from that culture. So he was able to peel away people from the evangelical base. But I must say, it is a considerable social force that we have to reckon with all across the Americas, including of course, in the United States.
1: Brazil has a large black population. And I'm wondering if there's a racial divide here because in the footage that I've seen, It's mostly Bolsonaro supporters seem to be overwhelmingly white. Is that at work here?
0: If you look at a map, and these are not accurate, obviously, but if you look at a map of the election victory, Lula wins in the north and the northeast, areas where the Afro-Brazilian and indigenous populations are in large numbers. This is the red wall. Um, Even Fernando Haddad won that red wall. Brazilian politics, people may not admit this, are deeply racialized. Black voters in Brazil voted overwhelmingly for Lula. Uh, black voters in Brazil overwhelmingly talk of Bolsonaro as a genocider. you know, conducted genocide during the pandemic against indigenous and black people and so on. That's People talk routinely, they call him an assassin and so on. The southern part of Brazil is whiter and more divided. And there you get the core Bolsonaro supporters. You know, I often joke with people and say, sections of brazil are like the american midwest except they're speaking in portuguese you know there are parts of, of rural uh, sao paulo state which are like um, you know idaho and ohio and places like that where there are essentially white settled farmer communities um, which basically have rooted uh, sense that they are the soil and so on and they will re- reject um, you know uh, any idea that there should be a state uh, they have their own sort of libertarian ideas, which Bolsonaro was able to capture, kind of racist, machista, libertarian politics, which is very familiar. It's the base of Trump. You know, it's the kind of racist, machista, um, you know. And by the way, when we say machista, let's acknowledge something. Before Trump's victorious election, a, a audio tape of him emerged where he talked disparagingly about a woman saying, I'm going to grab her by the you-know-whats. Um, and yet he won uh, a majority of white women's votes, um, even though there was a sort of a thought that this audio tape was going to torpedo his chances at getting women voters. He won more white white women. Um, there's a way in which a kind of machista thing crosses uh, gender and sex lines, you know, that you don't have to just be a man to adopt a kind of machista worldview. It's not for nothing that Bolsonaro is called Trump in the tropics. That That is part of the base, and race plays a role. People may not know this. Brazil didn't have an anti-colonial movement. Brazil was created as a gift from the king of Portugal to his son. Um, that's how it got its independence. And secondly, there wasn't really an anti-racist movement in Brazil. The most important anti-racist measures taken were taken in the two governments of Mr. Lula and the government of Dilma Rousseff. They put in place policies for creating public education where, where indigenous and Black Brazilians could study. They put in place uh, infrastructure in the Northeast of the country. And Lula made a big deal about Brazil's relationship to Africa, traveling in Africa numerous times and so on. But Brazil didn't, hasn't, didn't have like a civil rights movement. The main civil rights came during the Lula government. The Pt,
1: the workers' party, Lula's Workers' Party, did very poorly in the first round. It lost uh, lots of seats in the Congress. Uh, A lot of the governorships went to Bolsonaro-backed groups. Uh, So he's going to have a very difficult time to govern, given the makeup of the uh, Congress in, in Brazil.
0: I spoke to Juliana Cardozo, who's an indigenous leader in the Workers' Party and will be a federal deputy. She won her seat on October 2nd. And I asked Juliana Cardozo, I said, you know, in the um, Senate, the right has a majority. In fact, Bolsonaro's party has the largest block in the Senate. In the uh, Chamber of Deputies, the center and the center-right and the right are much larger than the Workers' Party. Now, she said something interesting, which she, she said that Lula is a real ace. You know, he is able to negotiate with everybody. He's going to try to push his agenda through despite the fact that the right controls the Congress, the nat- National Congress. Also, Lula picked as his running mate a man of the center-right, Alcamin. Now, Alcamin had run for president before against Lula and was defeated. He's a man of the center-right, but he's also a great wheeler-dealer in Brasilia, uh, where the National Congress sits. He is able to talk to people of his own ilk. Um, and the fact that Fernando Henrique Cardozo, the president before Lula, Uh, endorsed Lula, you know, Cardozo, by the way, was a great dependency theorist and then became a neoliberal president of Brazil. Um, He just endorsed Lula. It looks like the center-right is willing to play ball with Mr. Lula's agenda. And Alcomen will play a role as the vice president in this. So, you know, Juliana Cardozo is correct. It's going to take a lot of work from Lula himself to form a block to pass legislation and so on. But I think they're going to get parts of the center right to go with them. Um, I also want to say that Lula has got two tasks before him. One is domestic, the other is international. And when I talked to his team, they were very clear that their domestic agenda was going to be pushed against hunger and so on. But the real work is going to be international. I mean, Lula is going to push for Latin American regionalism. He has a proposal for a new Latin American currency called the Sur. And they're going to push hard. Uh, to rebuild a kind of BRICS block. Um, He's going to intervene in the negotiations around Ukraine. I can almost guarantee this. People might not remember that before the the, uh, Iran nuclear deal, Lula and his foreign minister, Celso Amorim, were in Tehran, where they were able to get a deal on the table between the Obama administration and the Iranian government. And after the deal had been cut, Uh, Lula says on the record that Obama betrayed him and walked away from that deal but Lula is going to take that experience about a month before the election I heard him speaking about some of these things about his international career he is very clear that back in the presidency he's going to be the colossus astride the planet
1: You're listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons Part 2 of a special two part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program with Vijay Prashad and his books, Washington Bullets and the Darker Nations, call us at 1 800 444 1977. Again, that's 1 800 444 1977. Or go online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternative radio. I want to hear your views on Iran. Uh, The September 16th death of uh, Jina Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish-Iranian woman, triggered a revolt that continues. Unlike Tehran-centered uprisings in the past, this one is much more countrywide and is led by women. The slogan is Zan Zandegi Azadi, woman, life, freedom. Demonstrators have been killed, and many have been arrested. Iran almost reflexively blames Israel and the U.S. for instigating the uprising. How strong is the government in Iran? Will it hold on to power, or is this the beginning of the end of the Islamic Republic? Well, first
0: I want to make an analogy, and and I think the analogy actually is useful for what I'm going to say. You'll remember that a couple of summers ago in the United States, about 30 million people roughly took to the streets for the Black Lives Matter protests, very large demonstrations across the United States, angry at the kind of systematic discrimination faced by uh, people of African descent. I mean, it was an amazing summer of protest. 30 million people. Again, it was small towns, big cities and so on. This was not all in New York in in san francisco it was in places that you and i might not even imagine that such protests could take place i think this is a good analogy with what's happening in iran in iran there's a systematic discrimination against women as there is in so many countries around the world it's not just an iranian problem let's face it so many countries around the world including in saudi arabia the condition is even worse than in iran um iran after all the government has a space for women to be in 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 politics in in elected office even women in parliament uh, you know women do all kinds of things in iran which they don't do in saudi arabia but nonetheless there is discrimination against women including the use of these various uh, police forces the so called morality police and so on um there is a lot of disgruntlement about this you know people are upset and angry and no doubt that the custodial killing of that young woman was disturbing to people also to see the video of it. You know, whether she had a heart attack and died or she died because of wounds that she was inflicted on her, doesn't matter. It was a custodial death. She died in custody. Um, and why was she in custody? Because her headscarf was not on or, or something so minimal as that. Um, do we really want to live in countries where this kind of thing is is, is put forward as the law of the land, I prefer not to. Uh, And I think a lot of Iranian women also prefer not to. So in that sense, they are articulating frustration which was there in 1979, right after the Iranian revolution, before the Islamic Republic was created, there were mass demonstrations uh, by young women against the imposition of things like compulsory headscarf. You see, these women are not saying we shouldn't be allowed to wear a headscarf. They are just saying it should not be compulsory. If women want to wear it, they can wear it. It's a question of the compulsion, the control of women's lives and bodies and so on. In fact, their protests should echo in the U.S. Supreme Court talking about controlling women's lives. Now, will the uh, government fall? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Because, you know, in the same way that the U.S. government didn't fall when 30 million people took to the streets, I don't think this government will fall even if the Israelis and the U.S. and others are most likely playing a role, egging on, you know, the the legitimate grievances people have, they're egging them on. There's no doubt about that. You already see um, the way in which the Western outlets are reporting this story sanctimoniously, you know, as if they don't have their own problems with racial violence or with gender violence and so on, as if Iran is the only place that struggles with these issues, hardly. They are sanctimoniously reporting it. Obviously, they see this as a vulnerability for the Iranian government. I don't think the Iranian government is going to fall, not because they are, you know, more uh, entrenched, you know, in terms of the state structure, but I think they are more entrenched ideologically. I think there are very large numbers of people in Iran, very large, maybe a a plurality of people in Iran who find this, who look at this and say, this is the Western influence. Um, All those years of sanctions and the brutalization of Iran by the West has created a deep anti-Western consciousness. And there are people who associate not wearing a headscarf with wanting to be pro-West. That's too bad, you know, uh, that's a misreading of history. But on the other hand, the Iranian government has these large sections of the population, in my view, um, as a sort of bulwark against collapse. That doesn't mean it won't collapse or it can't collapse. It might, I mean, these things happen. It happened in 1979. But I just don't think it's going to happen because I think that they have deeper reservoirs of support than uh, you might imagine.
1: Washington, of course, would love to see Iran once among its closest vassals back in its orbit. Let's move on to uh, China. Xi Jinping has been confirmed as China's leader for his third term at the 20th Party Congress in Beijing. She is routinely called China's most powerful leader since uh, Mao Zedong. There have been rumblings of dissent due to COVID lockdowns and other restrictions. Internally, does he face any serious organized opposition?
0: So there are 96 million members of that party Just to repeat that number, because this number should be cemented in people's brains. It's a very, it's the largest communist party. In fact, I think it's the largest modern party we have in the world today, 96 million. So that's a lot of people. And all Chinese people don't have the same opinions. There are indeed a number of dissenting opinions. And in fact, in the appointments made uh, before the Congress and subsequent to the Congress, it's clear that they had to appease different blocs. You know, the central bank goes to the right uh, of the party and so on. You know, different blocks get different positions. By and large, David, there is no attempt to unseat Mr. Xi because Mr. Xi is amazingly powerful. Um, And he's powerful because he's very popular. That's the base of his power. Just I think a year and a half ago, uh, in a Harvard University journal, there was a study of the kind of contentment uh, index in China. And it it showed the contentment that people had was very high. People are happy with Mr. Xi for the COVID, um, you know, way that China was able to deal with COVID in the first two years. Of course, there are rumblings now about zero COVID, even in the upper ranks of the party, because people are wondering, is it now time to open up and so on? It's hurting the economy. Um, Those rumblings are there as they are in all societies that try to tackle COVID. But he has... He earns great marks for the complete eradication of poverty. He's earning great marks for standing up to the West. He's earning great marks for the entry of green technology and the cleaning up of air quality. Things like that. He's very popular. That's the source of his power. Um, we got to face that. You know, when I was last in China, I talked to a range of intellectuals uh, who talk pretty fr- freely because you know we've known each other for a long time. And they, I found interestingly, were saying things like our faith in Marxism has been renewed because we think that she can actually uh, open a road for China to go left, uh, wherein previously uh, by under the, the previous uh, dispensations, including Hu Jintao, there was a more rightward drift in the government. And so people said, no, I'm I'm happy with this government because now you know we can see that there's an orientation. Uh, toward the people and so on. So I think the source of his power isn't his control over the military or isn't his control over the state apparatus. The principal source of his power is he happens to be an extremely popular person within China. He's not popular outside China. That's for other reasons.
1: Well, The Guardian uh, reports the venerable uh, British newspaper, and I'm quoting here, it reports that she quote, has tightened his grip on the Communist Party and the party's grip on the country. He has weeded out rivals and enemies through anti-corruption purges and cracked down on grassroots dissent by tightening censorship and surveillance. Hong Kong, once a base for Beijing's critics, lost its democratic freedoms of speech and assembly after Xi ended its semi-autonomous status. In Xinjiang, on his watch, I'm still quoting from The Guardian, authorities have created a vast network of internment camps with indefinite detention, torture, and other abuses that the UN says may amount to, quote, crimes against humanity.
0: Um, That's interesting. So first, let's annotate that quotation. The section where they are writing about Xi Jinping purging people from his party and so on, Uh, could better be used to describe what Keir Starmer is doing to the Labour Party, the purging of Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbynistas. I haven't seen The Guardian write as forcefully uh, about undemocratic practices in the Labour Party by Keir Starmer against Jeremy Corbyn and so on. Secondly, let's annotate the part about Hong Kong. The British held Hong Kong... For over 100 years, when there was absolutely no democratic rights of any kind, it was held as a crown colony. So now for the British to suddenly say, oh, well, the rights of the people of Hong Kong strikes me as ludicrous, you know, um, BBC has, has Chris Patton, the last crown colony governor of Hong Kong on to talk about the lack of democratic freedoms in Hong Kong. It's laughable. You know, if it wasn't so tragic, I would laugh at it every time. Here's The Guardian writing about internment camps in Xinjiang. Uh, Where was The Guardian when, um, you know, the issue of, it's a much smaller scale issue, but the issue of the Chagos Islanders came up. Uh, You know, when the Chagos Islanders took their case to the British courts, saying that we have been ejected from Diego Garcia, by the British Empire in order to build a military base, which they now handed over to the United States. So the Guardian exercises its ire against China, but the same kinds of things that are happening, um, you know, which they describe, whether they are true or not is separate, but how they describe things happening within the UK, I don't see the Guardian with that kind of courage. You know, they they use their courage to criticize the enemies of Britain. Uh, their courage is not to be used against their own... They don't hold their own people's feet to the fire. Okay, is Xi tightening his grip on the Communist Party? I don't know how you can tighten your grip on 96 million people. Um, The actual standing committees and so on that exist, they are not all populated by Xi supporters. You know, there are other factions in the Communist Party or groups in the Communist Party in the standing committee. That's very clear. If The Guardian went and looked at the roster of names after the 20th Congress, compared it to people's political orientation, they would find that they're not all Xi supporters. Um, So that's not entirely true. Tightened its grip on the country. That's interesting. This has to do with state party relations. Is the state identical to the party? I don't know if Xi can actually tighten the grip of the, the party's hold on the state. I think that's pretty much the architecture of the People's Republic of China. The party plays a very strong role in the state i don't know about tightening the grip tightened it from what like at what point was there civil society actors in the state you know the party plays a directing role in the state i don't think you can tighten that 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 sounds a ridiculous proposition it's logically inconsistent the question of Xinjiang is very interesting they, they say that the UN says it's actually not the UN it's a contracted report that was brought to the UN Human Rights Council. That's not a UN investigation. It's an external investigation, which Michelle Bachelet, former president of Chile's last day as the head of the UN Human Rights Council, uh, this was passed at midnight. It was endorsed at midnight. It's not a UN investigation. So that's actually duplicitous of the Guardian to call that a UN report. Um, You know, there may or may not be problems in Xinjiang, but for God's sake, at least they should be Uh, accurate about what they're saying.
1: In the background and more and more in the foreground is the climate emergency. COP meetings come and go. To paraphrase T.S. Eliot, in the room, the men come and go talking of Michelangelo. Disasters follow one after the other. In the U.S., Hurricane Ian and fires in New Mexico and California, floods in Nigeria and Pakistan, Record heat waves in South and West Asia. A new UN report says glaciers will disappear by 2050 because of the planet's warming. What we are seeing now will pale in comparison as to what's coming, unless, of course, drastic measures are not taken. I mean, if this crisis doesn't get people's attention, what will?
0: (laughs) I'm at a loss. To answer that question because one report after the other comes from the ipcc the intergovernmental panel on climate change and each report seems more horrifying than the next you don't have to read the whole report just look at the bullet points in the executive summary and you are horrified enough i'm told by scientists who read the entire report that sometimes the summary is less alarming than the details in the report I just don't have enough scientific training to read the reports because they are actually quite detailed and, and precise. If that's not going to get you, what will? Islands under threat, wildfires and so on. What is going to turn our minds to uh, focus attention on this? World leaders will gather in Sharman Sheikh, sheik uh, They will shake hands with each other. They won't make any agreement. Um, they won't move anything. Uh, the question now is whether we are walking Uh, off the precipice or running off the precipice. I don't know if we we even have the capacity to save ourselves from that fall. I hope so. I have young children. I I don't want the world to be destroyed. I I would like them to enjoy the rhythms of old age. Uh, I'd like them to enjoy a life. I'd like to see the planet survive this. You know, it's going to take a lot of old-fashioned organizing by people across the planet to refuse. Uh, More than anything, it's going to take people in the countries of the Global North to be a little more forceful um, when they elect leaders, that they will not tolerate uh, people who will speak from both sides of their mouths.
1: UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has been very consistent and articulate and eloquent about the crisis facing the planet and all of us. He says, we have a choice, collective action or collective suicide. Half of humanity is in the danger zone from floods, droughts, extreme storms, and wildfires, no nation is immune," he says.
0: He is a man of great, really great integrity, and he's, you know, been saying things like this for a long while. I mean, look, last year the Stockholm Institute CIPRI released a report which said that global arms sales amounted to two trillion dollars. Two trillion dollars—that's with a T. Meanwhile, the UN's total operating budget, annual operating budget, is three billion dollars. So Antonio Guterres is the head of an institution with a budget of three billion dollars. The arms manufacturers are selling weapons to the tune of two trillion dollars. Two trillion against three billion. Who's going to win?
1: Indeed. How do you address this seemingly um, old question of cosmetic change versus systemic ones, incremental reforms versus structural ones? Where do you come down on that? I don't think it's
0: actually a fair distinction because genuine people for change are always fighting to do both. For instance, we live in a planet where maybe 3 billion people are struggling with various forms of hunger. It's imperative for everybody, people of sensitivity and decency, to immediately fight to end hunger. Um, In fact, you know, it's the UN that showed that although there are almost 8 billion people on the planet, we, in our current situation, produce enough food to feed 15 billion. So we have the capacity immediately to conduct what might be considered an incremental reform. It's not so incremental for the people who will eat again, you know. Um, But there is enough food. But when you start pushing for the incremental reform, when you start pushing to abolish hunger, you're going to run up against some roadblocks. And those roadblocks are the system. Because if the roadblocks didn't exist, then food would go to the hungry immediately. You wouldn't have to have a campaign for it. There's twice the amount of food than there are people on the planet. You know, so what's stopping it? Well, the attempt to create incremental change is going to radicalize your movement to deal with the systemic problem. So I don't think these are a choice. You don't have to choose between. If you're sincere about surmounting, transcending the the problem now, hunger, you will run up against the systematic um, prevention of people from eating. So even the attempt to create a reform is going to revolutionize your politics. If you're sincere about doing the reform, if you end up just saying, let's create charity, and okay, we can't feed 3 billion, but let's feed 3 million. Well, maybe the system will allow you to do charity, but it will not allow you to feed everybody. And that's when the reformer becomes a revolutionary. We've seen this happen over and over again. Sincere reformers become revolutionary. When sincere reformers become charities, then they are no longer reformers. They are merely people involved in the charity industry. But if you're a sincere reformer, you will become a revolutionary. That I can guarantee.
1: So as Comrade Lenin would ask, what is to be done?
0: Well, what is to be done is for sensitive people, sincere people, to believe that change can happen. I think one of the great defeats after the fall of the Soviet Union was the idea that real change can't happen, whether this came from postmodernist thinking or conservative thought or whatever it is. People who were distraught by the capitalist system became anti-capitalist. In a way, the ceiling for their thinking was anti-capitalism. They refused to understand that above the ceiling of anti-capitalism might be something called socialism. Everything ended at anti-capitalism. So they were anti, but they were not for something. I think we have to provide new generations with the courage to get over the penalty inflicted upon the idea of socialism. Um, They need to have the courage to imagine that this world is not the only world available. Other worlds are also available. This is not it, you know. History doesn't end. Even old Francis Fukuyama, who said in the 90s that we are at the end of history, has now reversed his thinking. He said, well, I was wrong. History didn't end. Well, it hasn't ended, Francis. You're right. Uh, we have an opportunity to move things ahead. But we have to have, you know, hundreds of millions of people acknowledge that this is possible and join in this journey.
1: The Canadian singer songwriter Bruce Coburn says in Lovers in a Dangerous Time When you're lovers in a dangerous time, sometimes you're made to feel as if your love's a crime. But nothing, Coburn says, But nothing worth having comes without some kind of fight. Got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight.
0: you got to kick at the darkness till it bleeds daylight. You have to move on the contradictions. Old Frederick Douglass was always right. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. And demands, actually, to add to Frederick Douglass, demands... Don't demand things on their own. You need movements with very powerful uh, agendas to put the demands on the table. So, yes, Bruce Coburn, Frederick Douglass, all of them, all of them, all correct.
1: Thanks very much for your time.
0: Thanks, David. Pleasure.
1: You were just listening to Vijay Prashad on History Lessons, Part 2 of a special two-part program. Vijay Prashad is an internationally renowned historian and journalist. He's the author of many books, including The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, and Washington Bullets, CIA Coups and Assassinations. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Noam Chomsky, Arundhati Roy, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And we have a series of programs with Vijay Prashad. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Vijay Prashad on history lessons, and for his books, Washington Bullets, The CIA Coups and Assassinations, and The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, just give us a call, one 800 1977 That's one 800 1977 Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free. Just call us at one 800 Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.